Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin and go to Israel to examine the massive demonstrations across Israel on Sunday in response to Netanyahu firing his defense minister who called for a pause in the far-right government's efforts to pass laws by majority vote to overturn rulings by the Supreme Court. Joining us is Avram Berg, the son of Holocaust survivors who has been active in Israeli politics as a leader in the Israeli Labor Party and the One Israel Party. He was Speaker of the Knesset from 1999 to 2003 and is the author of The Holocaust is Over, We Must Rise from Its Ashes and the Chairman of Malad, the Center for Renewal of Democracy. We'll discuss Monday's general strike, which has paralyzed the nation and Netanyahu's postponement of his judicial overhaul legislation until after the Passover recess. Then we'll assess the importance of Putin's announcement that he's deploying tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus in response to the British sending 14 tanks to Ukraine with armor-piercing rounds containing depleted uranium. We'll determine whether this is a pathetic propaganda bluff or a sign of desperation. Joining us is Dr. Tatiana Kulikavich, who is a researcher on Eastern Europe who was born and raised in Belarus. She is a permanent instructor in research methods and qualitative analysis at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the university's Institute on Russian, European and Eurasian Studies. Her research focuses on international political economy, migration, and protest politics. Then finally, we'll look into revelations from unredacted FBI court filings from Guantanamo that indicate that the CIA may have been trying to recruit some of the 9-11 hijackers, which is why they did not share information with the FBI about the Saudi hijackers' activities in the U.S. until it was too late. Joining us is Seth Hetner, an award-winning journalist who was a long-time investigative reporter for the Associated Press, where he covered numerous stories of political corruption and American war crimes. He's the author of the critically acclaimed book Feasting on the Spoils, The Life and Times of Randy Duke Cunningham, History's Most Corrupt Congressman. And his latest book is Trump, Russia, A Definitive History. And we'll discuss his article at Spy Talk, FBI Agents Accused CIA of 9-11 Cover-Up. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now from Israel is Avram Berg, the son of Holocaust survivors. He's been active in politics as a leader in the Israeli Labor Party and the One Israel Party. 
He was Speaker of the Knesset from 1999 to 2003, and he's the author of The Holocaust is Over, We Must Rise from Its Ashes, and the Chairman of Malad, the Centre for Renewal of Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Avram Berg. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there was a, the firing of the Defence Minister, Netanyahu's Defence Minister, who wanted to put a pause on Netanyahu's and the Likud Party's efforts to basically gut the Supreme Court. That led to massive protests across Israel on Sunday, and then on Monday a general strike was called. And now I understand that the judicial overhaul legislation has been put on hold until the next session of Knesset, which is after the Passover recess in April. That's according to National Security Minister Ben Gvir's Jewish Power Party. So is that the latest, Avram? not really clear because everything is about the wordings. I mean, everybody is expecting for 12 hours already for the announcement of the Prime Minister about his taking of the situation, firing the Defense Minister yesterday was an expression of between a huge national surprise and a personal uh, hysteric reaction to something we don't really know what is it, but nonetheless it actually um, increase the level of antagonism between the street and the government. So everybody is waiting for the um, declaration of the prime minister, but he defers it and delays it for 12 hours already. Now about the wordings. If you say we put it back, I mean, we try to put the genie back to the bottle, bottle, and that's it. We um, restart or reset the system. It's one thing. If he says we just defer it for a couple of weeks and we actually really mean to come back to it right after the, the Jewish holidays, it will never satisfy or pacify the street. So we are waiting for the wordings more than we are waiting for the content. So it's not just Netanyahu, right? It's the Likud Party's Justice Minister, Yeriv Levin, uh, the religious Zionist, Zimka Rothman, who chairs the Knesset's uh, Law and Justice Committee, I understand that at the heart of the what's driving the so-called judicial reform is the hatred of the Supreme Court that comes from the settler movement and, and the ultra-religious community. Is that right? It's a compilation of a couple of oppositions. It begins with the personal agenda of the prime minister who would like to shape as much as he can the um, the legal landscape towards his appeal to the Supreme Court because he's actually uh, was indicted by three very severe criminal indictments and he's fighting for his uh, freedom, so to say. So this one agenda. The second agenda is the agenda of the ultra-Orthodox who would like the Supreme Court out of their blood system because they do not want the Supreme Court to impose norms of equality and therefore make them serve in the military serve compulsory military service the other the last element are the settlers who actually would like to do whatever possible in the occupied territories without giving any report or any accountability to any supervising uh, uh, legal system so when you have a meeting a meeting ground or a fusion of these three motivations you understand how volatile it is so in other words, this is not just about curbing the power of the Supreme Court. This is opening up Israel or this right far-right-wing government to annexing the occupied West Bank, rolling back 
LBGTQ rights, killing laws that protect women's rights and minority rights, and loosening the rules of engagement for the Israeli police and soldiers in the occupied territory. That so that's what's really the the agenda behind it, it right? It's a compilation of three different conservative agendas. It's actually the coalition of conservatives, ultra-Orthodox conservatives, ultra-nationalistic um, conservatives, and ultra-economic conservatives. Take all of these together and wrap them with the criminal motivation of the prime minister, and you have the perfect recipe um, um, to go against the Supreme Court and the legal system. So... If this ever were to be passed, assuming that this is a stalling tactic on Netanyahu's part, if this so-called judicial reform were ever to be passed by the Knesset, by this slim majority that Netanyahu has, then the Supreme Court would strike it down, obviously, and then you would have a constitutional crisis, wouldn't you not, even though there's not really a constitution in Israel? The constitutional, um, the constitutional crisis with the uh, little constitutional foundations we have is already here. The question is what will be the depth of it, what will be the size of it, and how comprehensive will it be. But the collision between the government who would like to see actually no separation, no checks and balances between any branches, to have one branch only, and this is the political branch, that controls the government and controls the parliament and controls the legal system and the court system, this is a collision that already uh, happened and is happening. If and when it will come to the scenario you describe, in which the Knesset will pass the legislation, we'll call it as a basic law, which our equivalent for a constitutional amendment or, or something like that, and it will be appealed, and it will be automatically appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will write it off or will say we do not accept it. The question will be not so much about Netanyahu and his cronies. It will be about the heads of services and the civil servants, the chief of staff, the head of the special of the police and the commissioner of the police, the Shin Bet, the Mossad, and all of these people. Whom do you listen to? To the interpretation of law by the Supreme Court or to the aggressive legislating of the the Knesset. And this is actually the exact exact description of the potential constitutional crisis we are driving towards. But isn't there a crisis underway now, Avram, with following the firing of the defense minister? He was concerned, he wanted to put a hold on this because he was concerned that reservists weren't going to show up and this would have severe national security implications. So already, with these massive demonstrations and, and a general strike, don't you have a, a, a national security crisis here? Isn't Israel vulnerable at the moment? Security crisis we have, but it's not a constitutional one. I mean, the firing of the defense minister was, let's call it, one throw too many on the, um, on the back of this, uh, of this camel. And people couldn't stand it anymore. This whimsical political reaction of a prime minister who cannot stand a professional position by one of the best ministers of his troubled people a lot. But this is not constitutional. It is political. It is unpleasant. It is ugly. It is quasi-dictatorship. 
but it's not a constitutional problem because the prime minister, by the end of the day, has the right to fire ministers. Maybe it's not aesthetics, but it's okay. But what about Israel's tech sector? That's very important, is it not, to Israel's economy? And I understand that there's a lot of objection to this uh, judicial overhaul Mm -hmm. in the tech sector. Is that right? It will take a while to restore the entire reputation of Israel. It's about the economy of Israel, the safety of Israel, the deterrence of Israel, the cohesiveness of Israel. I would say the, the, the innovative Israel. All of it will take a long while to, to restore. Achievements of 75 years of building up the reputation of this society were actually were shuttered down by three months of this government. So it is not that I say, listen, it is lost and we shall never have it back. I say it was good, could be much better, especially when it comes to the occupied territories and the situation and the human rights and civil rights of the Palestinians. Nonetheless, whatever demolition they create now, we should simply have to work harder for a better economy and better constitutional life, better equality and better, uh, better attraction of Israel, but not this kind of ultra-religious, ultra-fundamentalist, ultra-nationalist Tea Party uh, reputation. Well, but the, one of the leaders, uh, the finance minister of that very movement that you're talking about, the Israel's version of the Tea Party, this ultra-right-wing finance minister, Smotich, he says, quote, do not give in to violence, to anarchy, to objectors and wild strikes. We are the majority. Let's make our voice heard. I will be there. You come too. We won't let them steal our voice and our country. So those are fighting words. He is one of the, he's one of the most embarrassing individuals in our political life, but uh, thank his God he's not alone. There are a couple of uh, quite embarrassing people. It's a congregation of them. These are people who have no clue about the basic elementary foundations of what modern democracy is all about. Those who believe that democracy is the rule of the majority are those people who really have no, who really have no problem with the tyranny of majority. They do not understand the fine, very developed equilibrium between the rights of the one and the expression of the many. And how does it work? And how do you do it in such a way that it is not only that you do what the majority decided, but also how you do not oppress and you do not run over the voices which are not necessarily yours. Democracy is about containing many voices. It's not about eliminating everybody who is not you. But this is a very simplistic minister driven by eschatological messianic agenda quite, I would say, violent, aggressive individual with very limited understanding of global situations, of global languages and global content, and therefore somebody who was born into the settlements does not want his wife um, uh, to lay down and deliver the new baby in a room with another pregnant Arab woman because of this and that is a simply Israeli racist who does not deserve, from my point of view, neither the title of a minister nor the title of a public figure. 
So what kind of power does that coalition have? I mean, you've, I'm trying to get a sense here, Avram, of the massive the pictures we see, the video of hundreds of thousands of people. And this has been going on for months. And then Sunday it culminated with all carrying Israeli flags. So who's got the upper hand? In other words, have the far right gone just gone too far or and woken up a sleeping giant? It's a kind of a situation in which you don't have a winner, but you have uh, a coalition of losers. I mean, I do not believe that in any public or social uh, conference or discourse, you have a knockout winner. If it's a conversation that you come to midterm, that you come to a kind of, uh, of agreement, it is something that everybody has to give something. In that situation, we have actually, as you call it, a dormant giant or two dormant giants who never spoke with each other recently. And we are not equipped for this kind of, uh, of a social dynamics. Thank God there is a reactivation of the more democratic elements in the Israeli society, reactivation of their politics, and instead of being either referees or withdrawing from political involvement, they are back to streets, back to involvement, back to caring, and it is not anymore that the field is abandoned to the hands of the right-wing settlers and the ultra-Orthodox activists. So now it is actually a street which is not anymore vacant. It is full of activists, and by the end of the day, I believe that what it will lead is not necessarily what we see now. It will lead to an emergence of new political forces who will be much more committed to promote the agenda of a constitution for Israel, not necessarily for a certain content of constitution as much as to have agreed upon by all and accepted by all rules of engagement and the rules of the game, which we do not have now. And therefore, Netanyahu can, in a very, very uh, unpleasant way, do whatever he thinks is good or whatever he wants without any checks and balances. So I believe that the new political content is constitution for Israel. But what about other forces, uh, external forces on Israel? Who has influence over Netanyahu? For example, here in the United States, 90 House Democrats have written to President Biden earlier this month urging him to condemn what Netanyahu is doing in terms of his judicial proposals. And the White House itself hasn't said anything. There's a lot of pressure from uh, Jewish-American groups on Biden to condemn what Netanyahu is doing. And that even includes a former head of, of APAC. And then all we've heard so far from the White House is a statement from the U.S. National Security Council, and I'll quote it, Democratic societies are strengthened by checks and balances, and fundamental changes to a democratic system should be pursued with the broadest possible base of popular support. So that's... Well, that's I, I, a, was, I would say that here... You have two different considerations, the two different elements. The majority of Netanyahu supporters and Netanyahu coalition have no clue about anything which is outside of their immediate tunnel vision. They don't speak the language, they don't read the papers, they don't know the people, they don't know these circles. For them, they are all Gentiles, all automatically suspe suspected of being anti-Semites, so anyway, we don't have to listen to them. 
This is as narrow-minded as so many of these people are. As for Netanyahu himself, he made a while ago a very fascinating, troubling um, uh, strategic decision. His partners in America are not anymore bipartisan support at both houses and the Jewish and the Jewish community. He gave up on the Jewish community because 75% of them vote Democrats. He gave up on the entire Democratic aisle at the uh, Congress and the Senate. And he actually concentrates on his allies, which are Christian, evangelical, fundamentalist, plus Tea Party people, plus arch, black and white, simplistic conservatives. So Netanyahu's U.S. is not Biden, is not a Jewish community, is not a Jewish organization, and not even our beloved Tom Friedman in the New York Times. He doesn't count them. He doesn't see them. He ignores them. So he, but he wants Trump to come back, doesn't he? It's very complicated because if you ask me if I can read the strategy of Netanyahu, the tactics and the strategy is... The tactics is to pass the night and to pass the Passover, and the strategy is to wait for the, elect, the elect, presidential elections in America in 2024 and hope for another conservative uh, Republican uh, president. Well, one of the stories that are, is breaking over here in the United States is that it turns out that Netanyahu had a role in the 2016 elections. We have had an awful lot about Russian interference in the 2016 election to help Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. But now we're learning that Netanyahu was also involved in helping Trump. I do not know. The only thing I know, I mean, whatever was covert, I would say it's not beyond him, but I have no clue. I Mm. just, uh, it suffice for me to look at the overt going to the Congress behind the back of the, of the administration, and actually both houses take a position against President Obama, supporting Mitt Romney and a few other things like he is a kind of an American player rather than an Israeli player. And by this, he is, this is the most, uh, how will I say it, the most embarrassing legacy of his, and this is to make Israel a very partisan element in America rather than a bipartisan support, which was this, the history of Israel at the American political system. This is a very, very um, shameful um, failure of Netanyahu that Israel is going to pay generations ahead the price for this arrogance and hybris. Right, and the idea that Israel supported by the so-called Christian Zionists who want Israel to bring about the end of the world, it's not a very comforting Makes fact. Everybody has his own smart riches. <laughs> well, Avram Berg, I thank you for joining us, and I appreciate your insight here. Sorry for my coughing, but that's the reality here. Okay, well, no worries. Thank Get you very better. much, my dear. All Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Avram Berg, who is the son of Holocaust survivors and has been active in politics as a leader in the Israeli Labor Party and the One Israel Party. He was the Speaker of the Knesset from 1999 to 2003 and is the author of The Holocaust is Over, We Must Rise from Its Ashes, and the Chairman of Malad, the Center for Renewal of Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing the importance of Putin's announcement that he's deploying tactical nuclear weapons 
in Belarus in response to the British sending 14 tanks to Ukraine with armour-piercing rounds containing depleted uranium. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Tatiana Kulakovic, who is a researcher on Eastern Europe, who was born and raised in Belarus. She is a permanent instructor in research methods and qualitative analysis at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the University's Institute on Russian, European and Eurasian Studies. Her research focuses on international political economy, migration, and protest politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Tatiana Kulikevich. Hi, Ian. Um, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Tatiana. And what do you make of President Putin's uh, announcement that he is going to be deploying tactical nuclear warheads? Uh, he's already sent a couple of Xander missiles into Belarus. He says that they'll be building a storage facility uh, which won't be finished till July the 1st, and at which point he'll deploy the missiles. But he's doing this in response to the British deploying 14, I repeat, 14 Challenger tanks that are equipped with armor-piercing rounds which contain depleted uranium. So there's absolutely no no comparison between 14 tanks with armor-piercing rounds with depleted U-238 and nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons, some of which have a yield as much as the Hiroshima bomb. So does anybody take this seriously? Well, um, we should basically say yes and no in the sense that his announcement is real. He very, it's very realistic that he actually will move the tactical uh, nuclear web missiles to uh, the Belarusian territory. This is because uh, last year, in February 2022, Belarus, uh, Belarusian government, we should say, not Belarusian people, because people in Belarus do not recognize, a lot of them do not recognize the government as legitimate, uh, held a referendum uh, where Belarusian government basically scrapped its nuclear-free status. Uh, and uh, from that, we can allow a thought that this move was planned from the very, very beginning, before the war started, uh, and uh, that move was in Putin's head all the time. Uh, and um, uh, these weapons can be stationed. So that's realistic. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, this threat is not immediate. We are talking July, and the United States is monitoring, and NATO is monitoring, and they they told us uh, that uh, they don't see um, any moves uh, uh, with nuclear weapons uh, from Russia, and uh, United uh, Nations. Security Council is, is about to gather tomorrow or on Wednesday, and it will be interesting to see what China says there. 
um, and they are gathering on that question to discuss this specific question. And we should just um, kind of think why he does it and whether that's that's a threat. Should we perceive it as a threat? Really, will it will it be used, or it or is it a, just a move that he planned in his head, and what this move might achieve in Putin's head? So I would say this um, uh, announcement happened after after the meeting with the Chinese leader almost immediately when the Chinese leader uh, didn't stay in Russia uh, two, three days, they left after the second day. Um, and the announcement was made that China and Russia will not have a military alliance. Looks like uh, Putin and uh, Xi Jinping did not agree on many things and China prefers trade. Uh, that's how it looks. And um, China today also, one of the representatives of its Ministry of um, International Affairs uh, made an announcement or statement, uh, let's say, uh, that uh, they are against the nuclear war. So they are committing to a nuclear-free world, which um, uh, goes against uh, what Putin wants. And um, uh, wants or playing with the, play, the, the play he is playing. And I would say that's um, uh, what's, what's very in realistic looks, what looks realistic is that it's a part of informational warfare. Uh, and it happens, uh, July is the time when the Vilnius NATO, NATO Vilnius summit will be happening uh, as well, where NATO members and uh, uh, allies will be making in decisions on how to support Ukraine. Uh, so it's a signal to uh, those in the West who are kind of, you know, we can call them peacekeepers, advocating for peace and uh, showing support to Putin, uh, kind of to not to support Ukraine as much as, as the West uh, has committed to, 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 to support Ukraine. And uh, this looks similar, but a little bit more realistic, but similar to the news that um, uh, happened like a week ago regarding who bombed uh, Nord Stream 2, where we, we the news came in New York Times and Washington Post, but no evidence about anything was in those uh, articles. So um, uh, what also is interesting that this also this this actually. Um, threatens Belarus in a sense because Belarus go comes into more more submission uh, for Putin because Belarus never had permanent bases or storages or anything on its territory and now Russia will be permanently present on the Belarusian territory and Belarus actually had also relationship has a relationship with China which looks like uh, Putin might not be favoring from his end. So I would say informational warfare a lot and we'll see how the information will, how the situation will be unfolding um, because again, nothing immediate. Um, looks like a game, one of the moves in the game that was planned ahead of time a year ago. So Tatiana, you mentioned Xi's recent visit to Moscow at which he left after two days on a three-day visit. And it looks as if she wasn't particularly happy I think he did actually try to get Putin to agree to some kind of communications uh, or negotiations with Kiev, uh, with Ukraine. But Putin essentially ended up with being able to continue fighting the war, which he certainly clearly wants. He doesn't have any interest in, in a peace deal. He thinks he can win. 
but he, at least he can now can claim he has, you know, some interest in a peace deal. But one of the declarations that came out of this meeting in Moscow a few days ago was that Russia and China signed a joint statement saying, quote, all nuclear powers must not deploy their nuclear weapons beyond their national territories, and they must withdraw all nuclear weapons deployed abroad. So isn't that a slap in the face from Putin to Xi? Looks like they did not agree on... uh uh, on on economy that was publicly announced that nothing on economically was uh, uh, agreed between uh, uh, Xi and Putin, uh, and that puts uh, Putin under the you know influence of China in this sense. And looks like from this um, we can we can try to um, kind of get that thought out of it that um, China did not agree to send those. Uh, uh, weapons that we heard in the news, the discussion in the news, and uh, Putin wants to show the world that he is not in under submission of China and uh, uh, reacting against. Yes, and uh, uh, China is responding to that as well today uh, by saying that they are not uh, they are against a nuclear uh, nuclear world. And I would say they cannot say anything towards Putin because she, during his visit, actually said that he expects Putin to stay in power. So it would be unwise, I would say, diplomatically to publicly condemn Russia because it would go against Chinese uh, statements that uh, that were pronounced in Russia. But I would say, yes, we see disagreements between Putin and um, uh, uh, Xi Jinping, and uh, that's actually good for for uh, Ukraine, and uh, uh, let's hope uh, this uh, informational warfare that Putin is continuing, continues all the time to discourage some Western powers to keep uh, supporting Ukraine, threatening with nuclear weapons, putting them close to the European Union border, close to Poland, close to to Baltic states. I hope um, these Western powers are not going to be discouraged by this move, which, um, as we see right now, does not present any immediate threat. So it's obvious that the Belarusian dictator Lukashenko depends enormously on Putin after these massive demonstrations uh, of this fraudulent election, which he clearly lost. He sort of had to throw his lot further in with Putin. and But at the same time, he seems to have resisted of actually putting the Belarusian military into, into the war in Ukraine. So obviously he's still sort of doing a dance there with Putin. You mentioned earlier, of course, that the Belarusian people don't have any say because they live in a dictatorship. And even though the vast majority of them voted against this guy and his terrible family and then the kleptocracy that he runs. So will this in any way weaken him or could there be some unrest within the higher ranks of the military? The person who won the the last election, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, she said from exile, that Russian deployment of tackling nuclear weapons grossly contradicts the will of the Belarusian people. So is there any possibility that this could backfire on Putin? 
Well, I would say not really in terms of Belarus because uh, uh, Belarus uh, because Lukashenko since 2020 has been suppressing this dissent inside the country so much that Belarus has over 1,500 political prisoners and a lot of them decades have sentenced were sentenced sentence for decades of years, you know, 10, 12, 15, you know, some 17, uh, media is suppressed, a lot of uh, uh, people are suppressed inside the country. So I would say uh, if we see maybe, uh, you know, one or two or like, you know, very small uh, reaction from the people of Belarus that would be uh, already big, uh, but uh, I would not uh, expect any of that really and nothing widespread as well um the Svetlana Tikhanovska closed the door for Lukashenko to um to to try to, trying to balance between the west and russia so he has no choice but uh, be submissive to putin these days and belarus will have a chance only if the ukraine wins the war and uh, somehow putin loses power and that might open an, an opportunity or a window for the belarusian people to uh, gain or to become democratic or at least uh, you know, uh, throw away this, um, uh, you know, Belarusian dictator who has been in power for almost 30 years already nonstop. So just in the last minute, you mentioned the Nord Stream uh, pipeline. Is there any new information on that? No, nothing. I, I was I'm, I'm monitoring the news and um, uh, all these articles uh, uh, were more like yellow press looks looked like yellow press titles. I don't want to, you know, uh, <laughs> abuse anyone like or say anything bad about these uh, sources who, who published anything. But the titles were screaming that Ukraine was to blame, while uh, inside the content in the articles had nothing, no support uh, for such claims. Uh, the investigations are still ongoing, and there are all kinds of claims for all sides. So, um, no, nothing at the moment. Uh, so uh, my advice for two people is uh, not believe, do not believe the titles, read the whole story and uh, uh, question when uh, the article says reputable source because we don't know who these people are, you know. Right, right. and that was the New York Times, by the way. I thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Tatiana Kulikevich. Thank you for having me. Very much appreciate Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Tatiana Kulikevich, who is a researcher on Eastern Europe, who was born and raised in Belarus. She's a permanent instructor in research methods and qualitative analysis at the University of South Florida's School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the University's Institute on Russian, European and Eurasian Studies. Her research focuses on international political economy, migration and protest politics. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into revelations from unredacted FBI court filings from Guantanamo that indicate the CIA may have been trying to recruit some of the 9-11 hijackers, which is why they did not share information with the FBI about the Saudi hijackers' activities in the U.S. until it was too late. Забирает магнит, этот малый мне напоминает мой Минск Он без бабок идет на движ, стопудовый аптек 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Seth Hetner, who's an award-winning journalist who was a long-time investigative reporter for the Associated Press, where he covered numerous stories of political corruption and American war crimes. He's the author of the critically acclaimed book, Feasting on the Spoils, A Life and Times of Randy Duke Cunningham, History's Most Corrupt Congressman. And his latest book is Trump, Russia, A Definitive History. And he has an article at Spy Talk, FBI agents accused CIA of 9-11 cover-up. Welcome to Background Briefing, Seth Hetner. Thanks, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's been a lot of uh, going back to the 9-11 Commission and others, investigative journalism. Obviously, the fact that 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudis, many recruited from the kind of countryside, if you will, the most sort of Wahhabi backwaters of Saudi Arabia, people that really had never traveled abroad and weren't particularly educated. But nevertheless, two of these characters showed up at a restaurant on Venice Boulevard here in Los Angeles, a Mediterranean restaurant, and a representative from the Saudi consulate here in Los Angeles, Omar al-Bayoumi, he had a meeting with them uh, or some kind of interaction with um, al-Hazmi and al-Midar, who ended up going to San Diego, and I think they were the ones that flew into the Pentagon, if I'm not correct. But now you have found, and Spy Talk has obtained an unredacted copy of revelations found in a 21-page court document filed in 2021 at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base in Cuba, where the cases of the 9-11 defendants are being heard. So... What is the smoking gun here, Seth? Um, well, the smoking gun, to put it that way, is is really former FBI agents who investigated 9-11. Um, the document you mentioned, which we got, is really a five-year investigation conducted by the defense attorneys in uh, Guantanamo into uh, Omar al-Bayoumi. And as you mentioned, he's, he's, he's more than just a... He's not just he's not a representative of the Saudi consulate. He was a Saudi intelligence agent and he met, uh, he claims by chance with these two hijackers in a restaurant and the FBI never believed him. And so that was the starting point for this investigation. And over the course of five years, where they wound up was that uh, Al-Bayoumi, this was not a chance meeting, that Al-Bayoumi had been sent there by the Saudis and FBI agents believe that the Saudis were working at the behest of people in the CIA to try to recruit two of these hijackers. They didn't know they were hijackers at the time, two members of al-Qaeda. Uh, and that was a priority goal for the CIA. And this meeting at the restaurant was a prime opportunity to make that happen. So who was at Guantanamo that was being interrogated? Well, so there's a ongoing trial it's been going on for years now, of a group of defendants. Uh, included in there is Khalid, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and others. Um, this particular investigation was ordered by a, a defendant named uh, Al-Baluchi, who was, I, I can't remember exact his exact connection to Mohammed. I, I think he was a nephew or something like that. And he was basically a kind of a facilitator uh, in Dubai, not in the United States. He was a facilitator in Dubai. So the defense's argument there is that Omar al-Bayoumi played the same role 
that the defendant in Guantanamo did. And if that's the case, uh, and Abayumi was, as they claim, working for the CIA, if that's true, then their defendant did nothing different and shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be charged with a crime. Bayumi then set up these two who were later become hijackers, Al-Hazmi and uh, Al-Midar, um, right. down in San Diego. And they got money, I believe, from the Saudi ambassador, Prince Bandar, did they not? Yeah, that was one of the, I think this this hasn't gotten enough attention. So President Biden ordered a whole raft of documents declassified. And I mean, there are thousands of pages. And buried in there was a document confirming that Al-Bayoumi was what they call a co-optee of Saudi intelligence. And what that means is he's not a, a, an officer the way someone who joins the CIA would become an officer of the CIA or of any other intelligence agency. He was uh, kind of drafted into intelligence work. He was not a professional, but he was useful to them. And he reported on figures of interest in Southern California back to the Saudi embassy. What's curious about it is, is usually an intelligence officer will work for the intelligence agency. But in this case, uh, as you mentioned, he was being paid and run out of the Saudi embassy. So Prince Bandar, the longtime friend of the Bush family and longtime ambassador from Saudi Arabia to the United States, was paying this little network of, of intelligence agents to, uh, to monitor people like these two future hijackers. And that was kind of the, one of the more, I think, astounding findings that hasn't got much attention. Well, going beyond monitoring them, Seth, they, they were paying their way and paying their rent and giving them a stipend. Yeah. I mean, so let's talk then about what you've learned about the CIA's role in this and the extent to which they were presumably working with Prince Banda to recruit al-Qaeda people. Was Alfreda Bukowski involved in this? Because she was, you know, she married Mike Scheuer, she, who was the first head of ALEC inside the uh, CIA, the counterintelligence unit set up to hunt al-Qaeda. And then she later married him and then became the head of ALEC station. Yeah, she, if, if you know, she, she, if there was an operation, and again, this is, and this is something that FBI agents are are, are supposing. They we don't we don't have 100% proof of it yet. There's there's some new evidence that we have found. But uh, if there was an intelligence operation like this, then then Bukowski would have definitely been involved. But the 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 one person we do know about, and the person I mentioned in the story, is a CIA um, officer named Michael Ann Casey. Uh, she was also at Alex Station. And she's kind of uh, become sort of known for um, this incident that happened where the FBI had uh, had agents co-located inside of Alex Station, the CIA unit tasked with hunting bin Laden. And they had received cables saying, hey, this, this Khalid al-Midhar, this al-Qaeda member, he, we found he has a visa uh, for a multiple entry visa for the United States. FBI agents immediately saw that and we're going to send a cable to headquarters. And Michael Ann Casey, this officer, stopped them and said, no, 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 this isn't a matter for the FBI. And that left many agents with a very bad taste in their mouth. And, and that has kind of furthered some of these theories among FBI agents that uh, that the CIA was planning something or, or was trying. It, was, it wasn't just a coincidence that they were trying to prevent the FBI from learning about this because they wanted to try to place an agent inside. They were trying to recruit somebody inside of al-Qaeda. 
that was a big priority for the CIA. They had nobody inside Al Qaeda. They were they had no human sources. They were reliant on um, foreign uh, liaisons like the Saudis and NSA kind of wiretaps. But they didn't have eyes in the organization, and that was a big priority for them. And you know the the, the thinking is is that these two hijackers who all of a sudden show up in Southern California. Uh, that's you know that's 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 their chance to try to get in. So that's why they they the FBI believes that they were kept out of the loop on this, that they were not allowed to tell headquarters that a a member of Al Qaeda had a U.S. visa and was headed for the United States. But uh, Seth Atna, in two thousand and five, the CIA Inspector General's report said that the CIA failed to pass on travel inf- travel information on the Al Qaeda attackers in San Diego to the FBI. Correct. Yes. Uh, there's no dispute about that. The CIA admits it made a mistake. The question is why? Uh, what, you know, the, the inspector general said, well, we think it was a breakdown of the processes that were designed to further these exchanges. The FBI doesn't buy that. Um, you know, th- th- they were specifically told not to send this information. Uh, and Richard Clark, who your audience may remember, was counterterrorism advisor for both Presidents Clinton and Bush, um, you know, he also believes that the CIA was up to something here. And part of his belief stems from the fact that he knew about every, uh, you know, every Al-Qaeda member. And Al-Qaeda member in the United States he, is something he would have been alerted to. And the one case where he didn't know until until September 11th is when he found out was these two hijackers had been in the United States. So he he believes that he was kept out of the loop for the same reason the FBI was. Um, because if they had, if they had been alerted, if FBI had been alerted that uh, to Al Qaeda members of the United States, they would have arrested them, and that would have blown this, you know, this the CIA operation they think happened. Well, Alfreda Bikowski, now Alfreda Shoya, she's married to Mike Shoya, who was the head of Alex Station, and then subsequently retired. And I actually had him at the UCLA Hammer Forum that we did a few years back with him, he's sort of gone off the deep end and is now spouting Al-Qaeda talking points. So her career is kind of bizarre, isn't it? I mean, she had something to do with this operation in San Diego. That much we know, the extent to which she was the person who withheld the information from the FBI. I guess we don't know that. But she then shows up later in in Afghanistan in Khost where the uh, an Al-Qaeda physician who had promised to infiltrate bin Laden's inner circle showed up at a CIA base and blew everybody up. She was also there and became the, the, she was the one person that the CIA allowed the filmmakers of Zero Dark Thirty to spend time with. So I find that whole thing rather murky. What, what What do you make of Alfredo Bukowski's career? It sounds like from one disaster to another. Yeah, the, the, Alex Station, the unit where she worked, which was dedicated to hunting bin Laden, it, it was a really strange place in the CIA. Um, you, you know, the in in the CIA and in really in any intelligence agency, the the ones who run operations are called case officers. They are trained for many years in languages and skills and how to run agents, how to handle various situations. Um, how to make sure that things are done safely and properly. The the operate the what happened in Alex Station it was really being run by analysts 
who, who were acting as though they were case officers, even though they didn't have the training. And that's Bukowski is one of them. Michael Ann Casey is another. And there are many others. And, you know, we know for a fact that some of the, they, they, they pulled off some very bad operations. Uh, Robert Levinson, who was an FBI agent uh, who is presumed dead now, he disappeared in Iran. And for many years, it was a mystery what happened to him. It turned out he was working kind of off the books for this for these people in Alex Station. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we still don't know exactly what happened. And it, it, we just know it was a bad operation. And, and they had sent a, uh, you know, a man in his 70s with a heart condition into this kind of very dangerous situation. And he never came out of it. So, you know, they, they, have, some, they have some disasters on their hands. And so, you know, we've talked to other people in the agency. And, you know, while a case officer would never try to recruit, I use a Saudi to recruit another Saudi, that would be a non-starter. They wouldn't put it past the people in Alex Station because they just have a, they just knew them as uh, unreliable and then just kind of a, a little off kilter and, all, and, you know, and going off unhinged. Well, Bobby Levinson, who's disappeared in, on Iranian island and is presumed tortured and dead, he was a top FBI counterintelligence agent in Brighton Beach. He had investigated the Brighton Beach mob and Russian organized crime and, and also <laughs> their ties to Donald Trump, of all people. So you know, that's a significant loss, is it not? It is. He's a, he was a very highly regarded agent. You're absolutely right. Not many people know that that he he was kind of deep deeply involved in the uh, investigation in Russian organized crime in Brighton Beach. He was a just a he was a big kind of teddy teddy bear, a huge guy, but he was had extraordinary ability to develop sources, and he's he yeah he he was just uh, he's it, it was a loss. I mean that's an institutional knowledge that. Uh, is gone now because of this this disaster in Iran. So what do you think then? Are we ever going to get some clarity on this? I mean, after 9-11, of course, they did make so-called reforms so that different uh, intelligence agencies talked to each other and they didn't sort of engage in this kind of endless rivalry. But you also, Seth, had a piece recently at Rolling Stone on Charlie McGonigal, the FBI, a counterintelligence officer who's now found out to be probably a spy for the Russians, certainly a spy for the Albanians, and God knows exactly how much damage he did. So this problem has not been solved, has it? No, uh, it has not at all. It, there, there are major cultural and institutional problems in, in our intelligence agencies, and you know we've got to get this right. The United States faces severe threats, and, uh, you know, yeah, the, the, there's big, big issues here. Uh, but as far as your question of whether ever we'll get to the bottom of this, you know, I, I hope so. I mean, if the is if these FBI agents are right and the CIA did run a kind of failed recruiting effort uh, at, aimed at these two future hijackers, some, you know, there, there's quite a few people who know about that. Um, you know, uh, will they take those secrets to their grave? Maybe, but, you know, uh, you know, we just learned recently that, um, you know, Jimmy Carter's uh, wasn't able to get the hostages out because uh, of a operation that was being run by Ronald Reagan's campaign. And so it took, you know, how many years? We've waited 40 years for that information. We may have to wait, you know, another 20 to learn about 9-11, but I'm hopeful that we will. So just in closing, then, let's talk a little bit about McGonagall, the 
chief uh, counterintelligence officer in New York for the FBI, which is where most of their operations are conducted. We don't know exactly how long he was recruited and when he was recruited by the uh, the Russians. But we know that he was in New York starting in September of 2016. Yeah. So could he have had an incredibly important role there? Because the most significant things that happened in many ways involving the FBI before the election of Donald Trump was Comey going public just before the election over Hillary Clinton's emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop. And then Hillary Clinton blames that blames that on her loss. Yeah. So did he have a role in that? We know that the FBI station in, in New York was heavily influenced by Rudy Giuliani. And also shortly after that, I think just a few days before the election, the New York Times ran an article giving Trump a clean bill of health, saying there was no collusion with the Russians. Yeah. And one of the writers on that, New York Times journalist Eric Litbow, apparently strenuously disagreed with the editors who had talked to the FBI to spike his his version of the story. So what role do you think McGonagall took, Blair? Because many people think that those two incidents alone helped elect Trump. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean... Um it's a complex answer. I don't think, here's what I can tell you. McGonagall had, he was a counterintelligence, as you said, he was a top counterintelligence guy in New York. He had some insight into the Trump campaign investigation that was going on uh, called Crossfire Hurricane. But he didn't have the full picture. He, he, because he was in New York, he would have known about the investigation of Carter Page, this sort, this foreign, this advisor on uh, for Trump's uh, foreign advisor to Trump's campaign. He was kind of a nobody and kind of a kind of a doofus. Uh, but he was a subject of a foreign uh, intelligence surveillance act warrant. Basically, a secret wiretap was being run because they suspected him of dealing with Russian intelligence. Uh, he had dealt with them in the past. But he, you know, that was one aspect that McGonagall would have had some information in. Another one is that the whole thing that kicked off Crossfire Hurricane, which was uh, um, the the tip from an Australian diplomat who had had a glass of wine with George Papadopoulos. Uh, This is a the Trump campaign advisor, and Papadopoulos told him, oh, you know, the Russians have lots of damaging information. They have emails on Clinton. This came to McGonagall. Uh, and he forwarded on. So he did have some insight, but I also need to say that, you know, the Crossfire Hurricane was a massive investigation with many different aspects, you know, Michael Flynn and Manafort and uh, uh, Michael Cohen. I mean, there, there were just so many different aspects to it. So McGonagall wouldn't add the whole picture. D- did he talk to Rudy Giuliani? It's possible. Uh, I tend to think it was people in the on the criminal side, not the not the counterintelligence side where McGonagall was, but it's certainly possible. Um, was he the guy who who deep six the whole, uh, you know, put that uh, help push that story into the Times? It's we don't know. It's possible. I, I kind of doubt it. I don't think he had the full picture. So if he did inform the Times, he was giving them an incomplete picture. That's for sure. Um, but that's that's as far as we know. Well, let's stay in touch. uh, Let's hope it doesn't take us 20 years to have another conversation, Seth. (laughs) Will do. Okay. I'm happy to to talk anytime. 
Thanks a lot. And again, I'll be speaking with Seth Etna, who's an award-winning journalist who was a long-time investigative reporter for the Associated Press, where he covered numerous stories of political corruption and American war crimes. He's the author of the critically acclaimed book, Feasting on the Spoils, The Life and Times of Randy Duke Cunningham, History's Most Corrupt Congressman. And his latest book is Trump, Russia, the A Definitive History. And he has an article at Spy Talk, FBI agents accuse CIA of 9-11 cover-up. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that next door in Disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know How much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice Singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave In this land here of the free When time was night. One more light goes out